Support for the show is brought to you by SipTequila.com. They just launched their brand new revamped website, making it even easier for you to find the tequilas that you love and have them shipped direct to your door. Amazing brands and the best customer experience around, hands down. Shipping is free on all orders over $199. That's SipTequila.com. Premium tequilas ship direct to your door. In the town of Tequila, there sits a distillery. It's large, not considered boutique, and came with some equipment that most producers wouldn't even know what to do with. But that wasn't the case when Enrique Fonseca purchased Tecalena from one of the spirit giants back in the day. Instead of getting rid of the equipment, he went to work on repurposing it to create some of the best tequila around. My guest today fell in love with this distillery while tasting one of its offerings years ago, and has since built a lifelong friendship with the legendary tequila producer, as well as partnering with him to create some of the best brands around. We're going to hear about this distillery and look at some of these brands on this episode of The Agave Social Club Podcast, hosted by me, Doug Price. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Doug Price, and this is the Agave Social Club Podcast. It's been over a year since my guest has been on the show. He was one of the most requested guests to bring back. I am here with Jake Lustig. Jake, welcome back, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really a fun opportunity to be able to talk with you. Always a pleasure. Jake, you're part of the Haas Brothers, a very highly respected importer group out of California. You've taken their tequila portfolio to the next level. I mean, you're also a brand owner. You're very involved with with a lot of great tequilas here. Um, Haas Brothers is a 160-year-old, 170-year-old San Francisco uh, leading spirits company. It launched a bourbon in... 1872 uh cyrus noble bourbon okay so a lot of a lot of history there tons of history and they're a big jewish philanthropic family involved in a lot of different industries i worked for i worked for 22 23 years for the wing of them that does spirits i wasn't involved in the wing of that family that does banking and finance uh, they ran levi strauss for 150 years they launched Levi Strauss in the 1850s. And the time eventually came that our needs on the brand ownership side with agave spirits and also our rum and some bitter liqueurs needed its own, that come out of Mexico, needed their own like sales and marketing team essentially and budget. And so what we did was create an offshoot called Terra Nova, which is just my company, jointly owned with Enrique Fonseca, actually, to handle our sales and marketing challenges in the United States, Asia, Europe, a little bit in Mexico. A good segue to Enrique Fonseca, because on today's episode, you know, most of the time we're, we're brand focused here, but uh, we've got a lot to cover as we're not just looking at a brand, we're looking at a distillery. We're looking at NOM 1146, Tecalena Distillery, out of the Valley region with Enrique Fonseca. Before we get into this, remind us a little bit of your story, how you were drawn into the agave world and tequila. Wow, that's a long story because I've been at this 27 years, but the, the quick flyover is I was a young man living in Oaxaca and worked in the mezcal industry by happenstance, by taking tourists out to distillery villages for mezcal when the interest in mezcal was nascent, but tequila was already 
off and running in the United States. Patron was was enjoying a huge, huge growth. And so people visiting Oaxaca asked, can we see in addition to rug weaving villages and pottery villages, wood carving villages, hey, can we go see a distillery? I really enjoyed giving those tours. I frequently took people just back to the distillery that I had learned of when I was 16, accompanying my stepfather to get some mezcal out there. And the 90s were tough for mezcal. In selling mezcal, you really needed to explain why it didn't have a worm and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And essentially, one of the people that loved my, where a region that loved my mezcal was Jalisco. And in Jalisco, who who was appreciating mezcal were cultivators and old tequila makers that told me our Oaxacan style of making mezcal mirrored what their great-grandfathers did in tequila. That was a point I didn't actually fully come to comprehend or believe until somebody like two decades later sent me the original 1948 Norma Oficial Mexicana, the official Mexican norm for tequila production. And I thought, oh my God, these guys really used to make tequila the way we make mezcal. So all of that commentary I should have taken more with more sincerity. But one of the, the champions who really enjoyed our mezcal a lot was the founder of Espolón Tequila, Raúl Plasencia. And he said to me, hey, if you can help me launch this new tequila and figure out a good label for me and how in the hell I can get in the United States and build it, we can be partners. So how, how old were you? 23, maybe 23. I think so. I'm not that good at fast math. Maybe I was 24. Okay. Getting Espolón on the map opened my eyes to the tequila industry and also opened my eyes to how underserved the Latino community was in California, because that's where I live, from salesmen and from distributors. And so I created a whole plan for Southern Winning Spirits. And they hired me for the next 10 and a half years until I left to go run Haas Brothers. That job at Southern Winning Spirits was tequila specialist, Latin market specialist. So I worked on, you know, Mexican brandies too. I worked on things that have some gravitas or some usage consumption in the Mexican community, mostly Mexican here in California when we talk about Latinos. And that gave me exposure to just really meeting a ton of tequila distillers and really becoming enamored with their stories and their histories and their differing methodologies and their different zones of production and all of that. Yeah. I mean, just a, a huge passion for you for over 20 years to be able to, I mean, start down there in your early twenties to really get involved in this and to see this, especially at a time when back then you're not dealing with a lot of things that you're dealing with now and the, you know, the celebrity tequila front. I mean, all these things of just making Absolutely. agave spirits out of the passion. I mean, there's many still doing it that way today, but I'm sure back then it, it was very different. It was very different. I mean, I spent the, the first few years just explaining to bars and restaurants, distributors, what Mixto tequila was and trying to encourage people to revisit tequila because so many people had those college war stories and it was just really it'll have to be on my gravestone better lucky than smart it was really just the right timing the fact that i knew spanish growing up and the fact that i could really relate coming from mezcal coming from something that was so intensely about production and not marketing to really have a heightened sensitivity i think for tequileros uh, stories and family histories 
that was that was the really alluring thing for me. Yeah, and then I can tell there's a deep passion there for for making tequila the traditional way to to understanding those stories because you know there's there's a lot as I said there's a lot that are no longer making it that way and so I know that's that's a huge passion for you. At some point, you meet legendary tequila maker and agave farmer Enrique Fonseca who owns Tecalena Distillery. This is now 1146. How how did you guys meet and and what drew you to his distillery? Because there's a great I mean there's a great friendship here between the two of you. Oh, it's really evolved yeah it's really evolved the story was just really essentially that i i was now responsible at southern wine and spirits for a really large tequila book and to do the job well i really wanted to know who we were selling and i created this manual of sorts because you know the difficulty for distributors is how do they approach bars restaurants retailers with compelling stories bullet points that will encourage someone to take a chance and buy the products and Everything was either being sold as, like you say, like either, you know, being a global Meeks, though, pretty low quality brand that gave people headaches and or a low quality product or like a, a party spirit, you know, only to be broken out and celebrations or something. I spent so much time in the first years just trying to convince people about the, the attributes or the benefits of 100% agave versus Meeks, though. I had this like huge palette of brands. And there were standouts and the real, a really amazing standout for me was always Lapis Añejo, which we don't give enough attention to these days, but that cobalt blue pyramid triangular bottle. And it was just, it had such a distinctive mouthfeel and it's got such a kind of, it's built on a foundation of just real creaminess and elegance, but not hyper sweet. I was so intrigued. I wanted to know who made it. And in one of my trips, regular trips to Guadalajara, you know, scheduled a meeting with Enrique. And we were just very, very fast friends. Enrique is, ask anyone who's ever known him, he's he's an extremely multidimensional person. He owns Tequilenia and he, he's a predominantly an agave producer, agave cultivator and producer. And then so he owns the distillery and, and that's a compelling story to tell. But he also is big in ranching, you know, wheat oats huge in citrus he grows coffee he's he just he uses different days to attend to different passions of his very methodical seems like he's very methodical with everything that he's doing he's a, he's a very methodical person yeah we'll, we'll discuss it as we get into i've yeah. got a lot of tequila in front of me but he seems just very methodical there so you know great relationship as you've been able to build over the years a uh, real quick last year when you're on the show you you shared a little bit of story sometime in the 80s there was a, a cuervo agave buyer who said yes. to Enrique's father, we just need to figure out how to make tequila without agave. And yep. it seems like that that's become a reality for, it's for some big, big brands. How, how important is it to you, you know, to put out products still using mature agave, giving tequila the respect it deserves as you're involved with almost half of the brands, if not more than half the brands coming out of 1146? I never in my life would have imagined that the conversation would come to how is how important is it to <laughs> make a tequila from mature agave, but that is exactly where we are. I could I could use food references, you know, we could use any kind of, you know, any kind of thing that comes from an agricultural product, uh, unless you're specifically, you know, wanting to make fried green tomatoes and you don't want mature tomatoes, 99.9% of everything. I mean, I, I guess, whatever, you could talk about veal is, is delectable and succulent because it's not mature, it's young. But in certainly, as we know from like fruits and vegetables, you, you want maturity to 
have full access to their flavor. In some cases, maybe their, their health benefits. But what's happened now is that the industry has actually run out of mature agave for the most part. There's just a very minute amount left and it's at a really expensive price. So that's the whole issue right now. I'm not, I'm not, having, I'm not explaining anymore to people the benefits to 100% versus Mixto. In fact, ironically, I'd prefer now a Mixto that's made with real tequila yeah. and sugarcane than, you know, than a totally diffused tequila. Agreed. None of us can really believe it. And then the pandemic with everybody sitting at home guzzling down tequila and American whiskey and kind of pushing to the side flavor vodkas and Spanish brandies and the plethora of gins and all of that just saw us in a very precarious, fragile situation double in gravity. It's just been really a conundrum for a lot of producers. Yeah. A lot of barrels were emptied out. I mean, a lot of people really fell in love drinking at home with Reposados and Yehos, Extra and Yehos. And, you know, I know a lot of producers, uh, I, I have a lot of guests on the show that off camera tell me, man, it's real. It's real getting, you know, they, they're working hard just to get Blancos out. Maybe they can get a Reposado that's, you know, six months, but to go longer, it's, you it's know, a four hard months, thing. Yeah, three months. It's a hard thing. And the industry is really right now just doesn't have Añejo. People have not been, they've been betting that the outstandingly high prices, you know, 25 to 30 pesos four years ago would provoke everybody to plant agave everywhere they could and that there would yeah. be a cyclical glut. That didn't happen for two reasons. Diffusers use agave that's only two and a half, three years old. So you're not seeing plants reach maturity. And then, as I said, during the pandemic, we just, we had a hundred percent growth in the, in the category. It doubled in size. And so yeah. it's made for just a, a very, uh, kind of like a perfect storm. There are still, I mean, there are guys like Enrique that are, they're looking to push those agaves to get that high sugar content. So, oh yeah. And he's not alone. He's not alone. I mean, the four Arte gnomes coming from Felipe Camarena, Salvador uh, Rosales, Enrique Fonseca, and Sergio and Jose Manuel uh, Vivanco. Those are four of now maybe eight or nine families determined to produce really, really high quality tequila. Of course, Guillermo Erickson Salsa at Fortaleza is there. Carlos Camarena at Tequila Ocho. The Orendain family, Jaime and Eduardo and those guys. So we're, we're, not, we're not the lone squad out there, but we are certainly now just a minute fraction of yeah. what's being produced and, and sold. Tecalenia. Tecalenia Distillery, NOM 1146. Every every bottle's going to have for anybody that's going, what, what's a NOM? The, the Norma Fischia of Mexico, Mexicana, which which you explained, that every bottle's going to have a four-digit number. That's Tyne, the brand, the that's distillery. Right. So you can look up. It's neat if you want to look up and say, hey, which one is this? What is this coming from? This is 1146. It's coming out of the Valley region. Owned by architect Enrique Fonseca. He's fourth-generation agave farmer and master distiller. Uh, he's got one of the largest holdings. I mean, you said the agave farm. I mean, this guy's got one of the yeah. largest Highlands holdings of agaves in the industry. A little bit of a juxtaposition. We got this Valley distillery and then bringing in these amazing right. Highlands agaves. Talk to us about this distillery. Tell us, you know, what, what is making this distillery? Because this is a very special, I mean, if, if I'm looking to produce tequila, this is on the short list to go. They're doing some special things, but they're doing some unique things with this distillery, with distillation and, and just how they're making tequila. So talk us through to set the stage as we get into these tequilas of what's going on with this distillery. Not to get to it esoteric or eclectic here, but my father, my late father used to say, a person is the sum of their experiences. And so we learned that our foundations and our ancestry and where we come from 
what the foods we grew up with and all of that really dictate to a large degree our passions and what affects us emotionally. And Enrique coming not from a distiller family, but a cultivator family really exhibits that. He's got a, a really intense foremost interest in agriculture and cultivation. I don't think his father, grandfather, or great-grandfather had any desire ever to actually be a tequila distiller, a tequila producer. But coming from a cultivator background and also just a, at large a agricultural background, Enrique really honors and knows the regions of Jalisco, his, his birthplace and where he's from, where he grew up. And so he actually grows agave in six different regions of Jalisco. And so he's connected with those local politics, those local families. He doesn't have any preference at all for the valley of, of tequila. He, he's from Atotonilco, El Alto, which yeah. I used to always call kind of mid-slope. If we talk about Guadalajara being at like 3,800 feet, and we talk about Jesus Maria being up at like 6,500 feet. Atotonilco is right there in the middle. It's like 4,600 to 5,200 feet. A little southwest of Jesus Maria. Yeah, that's right. Jesus Maria sits on top of a hill and then Atotonilco is down that mountain. What happened was Cuervo had a 10-year cultivation contract with the Fonsecas. And only into year three reneged on the price. And Enrique, as a young man was just so, uh, as we say in Spanish, encabronado. <laughs> he was so pissed off by that. He decided that the family's future would lay in having some self-determination and the reins of their future in their hands, not some corporate agave buyer's hands. Yeah. And so he endeavored to buy a distillery, and one that was available, frankly, I mean, it's just that one that was available, was Bacardi getting out of the tequila business momentarily. They later, in 2002, jumped back in with buying Casadores. But in 1986, I believe, was the number, the, the year. But they, they were selling this distillery. It was way too big for Enrique's needs. It's not a boutique distillery. It's a giant Bacardi plant. But Enrique became avowed to, rather than selling agave at a price that would ultimately lead them to bankruptcy, let's just turn it into tequila. But then what the hell are you going to do with that much tequila? Luckily... The family had lands and some wealth and was able to start purchasing barrels to store that tequila. But Enrique quickly became really acutely aware that American white oak was just too loose of a grain. It really over dominates the agave flavor fairly quickly. And not to not to to forget the, the point that most American oak is used for bourbon because bourbon requires new barrels each time. So they're jettisoning barrels left and right. And Mexico's, you know, a convenient 10-hour drive. Guadalajara is a 10-hour drive or something like that. Or maybe 20 hours, but it's it's accessible. But that that wasn't going to be a good way to store tequila on an ongoing basis. So he spent a lot of time in France and a lot of time in Scotland learning about how they store their spirits for so long and became very infatuated with a specific barrel, which is French oak, not used for spirits, but used for wine, and in particular, Cab Franc from Loire Valley. And so he just started buying those, those barrels to store his own tequila. By the time that I befriended Enrique, I believe he was already up to 20,000 barrels. And Jeez. so part of, yeah, from 86 to 98 or something like that. So one of the big impetuses was for me as a friend and also a huge admirer. And he's just a very, very soulful philosophical guy. He's really a great guy, great friend. Was 
let's figure out something to do with all your Blanco tequila. And then let's figure out a project to start depleting these swelling reserves of old tequilas. So the first one out the, the door really in earnest was Cimarron. And that brand already existed, but it had a very cheap kind of film-like label, like plastic, shiny label. And he wasn't selling very much in the United States at all. He was doing okay in Mexico. But I felt that bringing a little bit of kind of a craft look to that and really talking about point of origin, talking about Highland tequila and stressed agave with higher brick sugars where the agave aren't spoiled like they are in the valley they, they don't have abundant topsoil, rich soils, retain moisture. They're up on hillsides and mountaintops where they don't grow as large, but they really concentrate whatever starches and sugars they can. I just felt like there was a real place for that in well tequila. And so Cimarron has just been a fantastic success. Yeah, I've got some of the Blanco. Yeah, it's tremendous. I drink it. That's my main drinking tequila of everything that I have. Yeah, I mean, you, you've proven that because this is... A lot of, are they all one liter bottles? Do you do you make seven fifty? No, we do seven fifties now for stores, and even because of the what we call bulletproofs in New York and Southern California, we do pints as well of Cimarron. Because I see a lot of one liters. I mean, you got a screw top here, one liter. I mean, you are proving an option for every bar or restaurant that you can have a affordable, inexpensive tequila that is still quality, mature agaves, tastes great, could sip on it. This Blanco, I, I'd sip on this. I'd put it in a cocktail, but I'd sip oh, yeah. on this uh, as well. Tell us a little bit. I mean, what, what we do. we're yeah. autoclave here. How, how are we making this tequila in the process? Because even the autoclaves are, are such low pressure that this is just like oven. That's the big point. And he is, he's such a principled person, Enrique, that I've, I've reprimanded Enrique for having these leftover autoclaves from the Bacardi time that when Bacardi had that distillery. Yeah. And he's such a pra pragmatic and practical person. And he's very ecologically minded. He says, why in the world would we throw these three autoclaves away into landfill or get rid of them and use all that material to build something new. It's really, Jake, about the pressure and it's the time. And so yeah. going back to like cooking food, it's all about having a slow, thorough cook. You don't want to, you know, overchar or burn the outside and leave the inside of the plant undercooked. And so that's the primary thing that you need to worry about with autoclaves and where autoclaves come in with a lesser quality flavor than traditional brick ovens is for that reason that the high pressure cooking just cooks the outsides not and it's not a thorough roast so he set himself to converting these autoclaves to using the same pressure 0.8 atmospheres of pressure as opposed to the normal 2.4 atmospheres of pressure per square inch so he does a, a typical long slow cook the big thing i think that is kind of hallmark to enrique's flavor is what predominates in the tequila industry is you've got your now cooked agave. Your starches are cooked over to are converted over to sugars. Yep. And you're passing those through a series of roller mills with interlocking tongue and groove wheels. And you're putting that agave, those chunks there into in between these grooves. You know, the first two wheels are further apart because your chunks are bigger. And then your final roller mill is the wheels are more interlocked. In order to soften that agave and also dislodge agave fiber from caking into the grooves, you're spraying water onto your agave as it's passing through. 
And all of that water, of course, dilutes the sugars of the honeys that you're pressing out. And that's just de rigueur, that's normal. But what Enrique decided to do was implement a screw press, which is like a wine screw into a conical shrinking in size, reducing cone. And it's a screw that just keeps churning and churning and churning. And as the, the sleeve of that cone is perforated with thousands of little holes, like, I don't know, four millimeter holes, five millimeter holes. As the agave is pushed down this screw to a tighter and tighter, the juices are getting expunged by pressure out of these perforations and then fall into a trough and collect. Then at the end of that process, his agave goes through the typical roller mills to get what's left. So his whole first extraction is done without adding water, which means you have a lot less dilution, Yeah, which means the, the now cooked agave as you're putting it into the fermenters is around 13 to 15% sugar, as opposed to a typical distillery being at like nine to 11% sugar. Is he using with Cimarron's a deep, deep well water? Is that any of that water that's introduced? Is that a deep well water for yes, Cimarron? That's where he has to. That's where he has to. You don't want to get water from the river there because there's been so much, well, we call them vinasas, but there's effluence. After you've produced tequila, what, what's left is the water is very pH imbalanced. It's actually hazardous material. It has to be treated. A lot of times it has to be filtered through a series of aggregate to to get down to finally what's really just nasty and you have to deal with that but for so many years the big bottlers just let all of that go into the river so the river is very contaminated but the other thing that he does is when you're putting that higher sugar miel into you know the fermentable sugars with them not being so diluted the yeast tend to go crazy because there's so much sugar there's so much food so they could potentially boom fermentation could happen very quickly and they could die so he has to use a yeast that can withstand that, that high sugar. And it turns out that in Mendoza region of Argentina, they have similar conundrums with their wine production. So he uses Mendoza yeast. Okay. So wine yeast for this fermentation process. So we're going to be fermentation right. for uh, a handful of days there. And then distillation, he's got, I mean, we, we, we've got a column still here that we see a lot in grain whiskey but he's incorporating it in distillation here as well. Is that correct? If what makes Tequilania 1146 really unique, it, if, if it's not the, he does the roast traditionally at low pressure and long, long time. He does the expunging of the sugars using a, a screw press, then roller mills. He does the fermentation using wine yeast, but now you've got a, a pretty naturally thick, really rich mouth, mouth feel, really creamy from that high sugar origin. Then the next thing that I think makes Enrique so amazing in, in, at Tequilania is his use of so many different still types. That's really inspired me also in my own pursuits in Oaxaca with mezcal. It's so fun to toy with this and toy with that and experiment and see what one can do. So he's got there two copper pot stills and two stainless steel stills. And then he's got the old column still, the, the Thomas Coffee column still front, left over from Bacardi days. And he really was so determined. I think also because cognac is distilled in column stills. He wasn't dissuaded. He didn't look at that as a piece of industrial monstrosity equipment. What he became challenged with is, let me learn if, if in Armagnac they're making these exquisite spirits and retaining terroir and everything. 
let me really understand this column still. And what they began to, to slowly recognize is that the column still offers advantages that we never consider. You can open the top portals, you know, sometimes columns. So you see all those little windows, those profiles, yeah. and they, they've got plates. First of all, you can remove the plates. So he's down to like seven or eight plates in there out of something like 18 originally so that you, you don't have so much redistillation. But you can open the upper portals and let out your superior alcohols and your wood grain alcohols. And you can lower, you can open the lowest portals and let drain out your fusel oils. And you can really dial in as they have, as you taste in Cimarron, really the essence of what you want. And you can discard what you don't want. Whereas, not to dismiss the, the glory of pot stills, but in pot stills, you're making your cuts. You're cutting off your heads to get rid of those superior alcohols and methanols. Unfortunately, those also have a lot of flavor, a lot of bouquet. So you're, you're losing a lot when you cut your heads. You don't want to retain your heads. And then by the time you've distilled the body of your spirit, what's left, of course, most of the alcohol is burned off. You're starting to evaporate more water. And what you get are very soapy, undesirable flavors, kind of grassy, fusily, a pot distillation. So, you know, a lot of times there's pressure to reintegrate your heads and your tails and redistill them. But it's just a little more imprecise. And so we're up at now 50,000 cases of Cimarron, and it still tastes like the product he was making at 2,000 cases, 3,000 cases. So it's been a real boom for us to be able to use that and know how to use it. And then going back to what I was saying about the complexities of tequilania. So that's one of the complexities or the, the ingenious points of differentiation distinctions about tequilania 1146 is... He's using these different stills to create and compose products. He doesn't make any product with just the column. So Cimarron, for example, is 15% pot still at 85% column. And one would ask if the if you're so excited about the column still, why would you be putting 15% pot still into it? You We do want to return some of those vegetable fats and some of that viscosity, some of that richness that unfortunately you do lose. But that's also, I think, what makes Cimarron such a quaffable, easy tequila. On the nose, I mean, still vegetal. I mean, it is a solid tequila. Like I said, I could sip on this. Great yeah, cocktail. Yeah. This is when somebody's looking for something that, hey, I, I need something that is, you know, a little, that price point, because it's at a great price point, especially when you get that one liter bottle. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. it's fantastic. And you've got, I've got a Reposado here as well. It's very light in color. How, how long is this Reposado and what, what's the barrel as, as he's now putting some of this Blanco into the barrels? And that is a great story too. Everything with him is a great story. The old way of resting tequila. So Reposado as a, as a category, as an aging statement or an aging category was only, I think it was 1974. It was in the, that Norma. They, they revised the Norma. As you alluded to earlier, the Norma Oficial Mexicana, the Mexican official norm, which is like the governing rule book for, by, put out by the Consejo Regulado de Tequila, the Tequila Regulatory Council, on how to make tequila. There never used to be something called reposado before the 70s. But what you would do to make us felt delectable tequila is you would rest it just letter, literally to let a lot of the higher alcohols, vapors, cool off. And so you're... You don't have that 
burst of alcohol when you open your bottle and all that. It's, it's a softer experience. But it wasn't until the boom in American whiskeys and the subsequent plethora of available barrels, American whiskey hit its high point in 1979, that everybody started, and, and also the expansion of the American, the North America, the United States marketplace, before that provoked a lot of tequila producers to say, wow, we can make some real money here by making our tequila more whiskey-esque for our primary export market, and we'll buy those used inexpensive barrels. And that was what everybody did. The old way was to use what we would call vats, or the French call tons, or in Spanish we call them toneles, or the common word is pipones. But those are like those 20,000 liter vats that have that reinforced rebar so that the staves don't pop apart. Huge, you know, we look at them as wine vats. But just putting the Blanco in there for that oxygenation process over like two, three months. But the problem is you don't have much wood contact. You don't have that that surface surface ratio you have. Your surface ratio. So what he does is they say in Spanish, he paints it. They say lo pinta with... Pura Sangre Añejo tequila, which is aged in 200 liter barrels. And so that's got a rich color, you know, rich oak flavor. And so that's where the color and the flavor in, in uh, Cimarron Reposado come from. Pura Sangre Añejo. Okay. And we're going to, we're going to get to Pura Sangre. I've got some of their, their Fuerte here, but just for anybody that's wondering, because it has some Añejo, but it has Reposado in it, it can't be called Añejo. It's got to go whatever the youngest is. So that's why this is a Reposado. That's right. That's right. I've had bartenders ask me, are you sure that you want to talk about, you know, that they're putting Añejo in this to, to color and flavor it? Yeah. And like, absolutely. You can put something that's more exclusive and older and more expensive in a younger product to improve or do whatever you want to the younger product. It's not improving it, but, you know, give it those characteristics. Yeah, very, very light in color. I mean, great flavor there for the Cimarron. I mean, great it's flavor. A really, really great product. You you mentioned Pure Sangre. You, you do have Pure Sangre. This is the thoroughbred. This is highly respected in Mexico. Talk to me a little bit about this brand. And I've got a little higher proof here with this Fuerte, uh, this Tequila Blanco with this Fuerte. So just to mention that Fuerte is not like a bodacious, you know, beat your chest, high proof tequila. It's 87. No, yeah, it's 80, 87 proof. And we put it out at 87 just because it really shines in a in an upscale margarita. As a sipper still, people generally go for reposados or añejos. We do understand most of our volume is done in margaritas. So that's why that's why we put Pura Sangre at 87, just so it shines through a little bit more. But Pura Sangre is really the darling. That's really Enrique's darling. Makes Lapis. He makes Tequila 345. He makes, of course, the Fuente Seca line. And Cimarron is, is what pays the rent, proverbially. But it's Pura Sangre that that we drink as a daily drinker there in, in Guadalajara. That's his brand. And I mean, that's it. They're all his brands, but that's his, his heart. I mean, not to dismiss the others, but that's his daily drinker. And where, where that fits in Pura Sangre is really, it is a more luxurious, expansive product than Cimarron. Cimarron is pretty just lean and mean. And, you know, it's, it's a great shot. It's a, it's a great sipper, but Pura Sangre, whereas Cimarron is 85% column still in 15%, pot still. Uh, Pura Sangre is 85% pot still and 15% column still. It's It's got a heavier mouthfeel than Cimarron. It's weightier. It's got more vegetable oil because it's so much co- uh, pot still. 
And it's just a really rich, delicious tequila. It's it's really a fun one. And it sits at a very achievable price point. It's not priced for the, you know, as a house pour tequila in your, your local restaurant. But we try to keep it low 30s, mid 30s. Yeah, very affordable. Yeah, I mean, both of yeah, these brands. I, I love bottles that have the screw tops that look traditional. And that's what both of these look like. They both have options for one liter. I mean, this is very vegetal. There is some heat that that higher proof does shine through there, but it's not hard to drink. It's very easy to drink. I mean, a really so, and this is a brand that yeah. I don't think a lot of people in the States are very familiar with. No, we have a lot of work to do. That's our, here at the beginning of the year, that's that's really our call to arms with our distributors is let's really take a look at it because our, our big boy competitors are really having a hard time. Those that are using diffusers are getting some of that sweetness into their products using diffusers. Others are just ladening their products with additives, amyl acetate, like that Laffy Taffy kind of tropical flavor as an yeah. additive, glycerides, cinnamon, all kinds of weird, funky stuff. And by the way, for the for the viewer, the listener, when we say 100% agave, we're saying the origin of the sugars is entirely from the agave. We're not saying the contents of the bottle is 100% agave. Clearly, if it's a 40%, 80 proof bottle, it's 60% water. <laughs> so tequila makers are allowed to add up to 1% other stuff, as long as it's not other sugars. And so those are where those additives come in. We are, Pura Sangre is now more and more of a standout in that Herradura, Patron, Don Julio, Casa Noble, whatever, you know, Avion, that, that kind of that tier. Yeah. That $39.99 to $49.99 price point in the United States on the shelf. Some of our stuff is even slightly below that, but totally additive free. So there's a lot of opportunity to to grow Pura Sangre in our market. And that's where we're going to be putting a lot of our attention in this this year. Yeah, well-deserved. I mean, it, it needs to be on the forefront of bars, restaurants, of people understanding and knowing that this is a great product, yeah. uh, a great option for them. So, you, you, you know, we've talked about these two brands. And then, and then you really... You take it up a notch here. You create the Artenom brand. To me, this is, you know, we focused on this the last episode. To me, this is like the Hall of Fame. If you could work with anybody, you could build any brand. This is what you did. Briefly explain this concept of the Artenom brand. I'll have to admit that it's a little bit developed over over the years. Initially, I just had this profound recognition that, especially in tequila, well, in Mezcal, you're, most people are just doing the thing that they do. But tequila producers we're almost pushed by the market and distributors to be jack of all trades. You know, Patron Blanco always sold incredibly well yeah. over their Repo and their Añejo. And like Don Julio used to just do a tremendous business at the Añejo level. Herradura, I grew up, I, my, my father, rest in peace, used to drink Herradura Raposado all, all when I was growing up. It's a very radically different product than it is today. But everyone really has their strong suit. And I saw this confounding push in tequila for everybody to brag about everything that they did was top notch. And I wanted to do Arte Nome initially just really to get my subjective best Blanco, my best Repo, my best Añejo, knowing that those were never going to come from the same person or the same place. And then the reason I actually, I keep saying I, but we're we, it's, I have a business partner, Jose Espinosa, who's half owner and a also a guiding light in Art Day Gnome project. And he and I have been business partners for like 27 years, which is 26 years, which is just remarkable for me. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a long time. So that's the way it started. And when I approached these people, 
with Jose. Uh, it was all about, let's do your Blanco, let's do your Repo, let's do your Añejo. And they would always say, hey, I've got I've got the other expressions as well. And then we kind of have to back our way, you know, back out. Yeah, I just the, need the one. Door. I just want one of them. <laughs> yeah, I just want one. And, and also, with one gives them the opportunity to do something that they wouldn't normally do. Some yeah. weird extra step. Because we were never going to anyone saying, do you want to partner in a, to Arc they Know and just bottle what you're already bottling? That's redundant. So it was a way for each distiller, and it continues to be, to do something that's really special to them. And one could ask, well, why the hell would they do something so special to them for you? The, the answer to that question, if it ever came up, it didn't, but it was part of my pitch to them, <laughs> is... This is your gnome. This is your number. This is your distillery. We're talking yeah. about your story. It showcases them. Yeah. Yeah. It showcases you. This isn't, this thing isn't called, you know, don't Jake <laughs> or something. Jacobo. It's, this is about you. So they, it's really been fortunate. We've been fortunate and it's been a timely project. Just kind of when people were starting to feel in some cases anonymous, this this gave them a, a soapbox, you know, gave them a stage. Yeah. Last time, last time when you were on the show, it, it's been over a year. It's crazy to think it's been over a year. Last time you were on the show, Artenom 1123 had not come out yet. And and now it is out. It's another masterpiece from, you know, our friend Chava and the Rosales family at Cast Queen. It's buttery. It's light. It's got a kiss of smoke as you, you've got a little bit of time in your Mezcal barrels there. I mean, so, such yeah. a great job. And it's a really, it's a kind of a, a it's a perfect expression of what we're trying to do with Arcteno is yeah. something really different. I mean, I love Costco Wings products. They are unique in that they use Valley Agave, yep. which is lower bricks. So they, they can be a little vegetal and a little spicy. They're delicious. They have all the characteristics that you want from a traditionally, truly crafted product. But I did want to temper that a little bit, but still have a Blanco. And I was very curious about... If Reposados only came along in the 70s, and if tequila really started to proliferate, you know, in the end of the 1700s, beginning the 1800s, what were people drinking in Guadalajara for 150 years or 100, yeah. you know, what, 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 if you had money, if you had resources, what were you bringing to the cocktail party? And I learned from elders that they would drink Blancos that sat in wood for a flash. They didn't, they weren't trying to achieve 60 or 90 days, but they were just trying to settle the product. But, you know, we forget in the United States that this friendly country has invaded Mexico militarily six times. We took half of Mexico in a, in a false agreement in, the 18, in 1848. Mexico's culturally not super admiring of the United States, and whiskey never took off in Mexico. People could say, well, I see big American corporations all over Mexico, of course. But I, I read a book when I was a kid called Distant Neighbors that, sh that talked about just how different Mexico and United States culture were. So Mexicans have never really, on the whole, embraced American spirits or Napa Valley wines. They tend to buy more French wine, Spanish wine, Chilean wine. So when it came to barrels, they used as one would imagine, Spanish brandy barrels. Or they would use just these big wine vats because being a Catholic country, they were making sacramental wine since day one. So there's a huge long wine tradition. Not really boutique -y craft wines. That's more recent in Valle de Guadalupe. But the winery called Blanco Madero is actually the, I think I've, I've read, is the oldest winery in 
all of the Americas. That's in northern Mexico. So I always wanted for our mezcal to be very authentic, authentically aged, because despite some popular opinion that's erroneous, in Oaxaca, they've always aged mezcal since the arrival of the Spanish and the French. That's always been a, a subset of what was drunk in, in Oaxaca. So to really be as authentic as we could, Valley Agave, because also in the 1800s, they weren't growing a lot of agave in Los Altos. It was the Camarena family that brought it up there in the 1880s. Yep. So, you know, Valley Lower Bricks Agave barreled very quickly, just conditioned, but I wanted brandy barrels. And then, when, like I said at the beginning of this interview, when you talk about the origins of modern tequila in 1948 with the Normal Oficial Mexicana mirroring the way mezcal is made today, practically, I thought what they were making in the late 1800s also was smoky. It was also very pungent with agave. And so using brandy barrels that have been cured with mezcal, I just felt would be the best way to go. So that's what we do. As soon as we dump our mezcal barrels to do a bottling of Don Amado Reposado or Don Amado Añejo, we throw them on a truck, we rush them up to Chava while they're still wet inside, and we fill them with Valley Agave. And then we just condition it for 20 to 25 days. And that still can be a Blanco because it's not hidden 60 days. So it's still technically a Blanco. I think it's very much what what flavor profiles we'd be achieving in 1890. Yeah, I mean, it's it's beautiful. I mean, that 1123, uh, well done with that. Uh, we, we are here to talk about 1146. Turn the corner to 1146. As, as this is really... I would say this is uh, the number one, if not one of the top, most recommended in Yeho's. Every Facebook group, any group that I'm a part yeah. of, that somebody says, hey, I, I want to give a gift. I've got a whiskey fan. I've got somebody that I want to bring them into to tequila. What would be a good in Yeho? Arte Nam 1146 is hands down the most popular and, and most recommended. Reintroduce us into Arte Nam 1146. I talked a little bit about what Enrique was doing special with his his roasting of the agave, how that differs from convention using modified low-pressure autoclaves and doing a very, very slow controlled cook. And then we talked about the different way that he's extracting sugars, and the, the honeys, the mieles, and then his fermentation. And then we talked a little bit about how eclectic his distillation is, having all these different still types. The fourth big step that he does so differently at Tequilania 1146 is the barreling in that he doesn't only use French oak, though, you know, French cab front wine casks from Loire Valley. He does use some American oak, but never bourbon cask. If you ever find a bourbon cask at Tequilania, it's been refurbished, meaning it's been scraped of all of that char. Because while that char works wonders on, you know, Kentucky limestone hard water and softens the the bourbon effectively what it does when you're gonna put tequila in it for a long time for an extended period is it removes a lot of nuance and characteristic because it's it's charred it's carbon so it, it filters the product that's in it and softens it and removes a lot of the agave so i i was kind of cornered into i mean fortunately i really am fond of enrique we're friends but he's very unique and the way that he makes his añejos. And so I approached him and said, you know, I don't know anybody that's got such a diverse barrel program as you. And would you be interested in working with Arcanome with this project? But again, not just bottling what you do. Let's do something outstanding and different. Not that his own products aren't outstanding and different, but just I, I was really kind of, I didn't want to steer him. 
but I wanted to have a voice in the conversation to, to a small degree. And so, of course, he leans towards European oak, but that product was coming out for my own personal taste, just a little too austere. It was, you know, very tight, spicy, very linear. And ultimately, while that's incredible and a lot to meditate on and contemplate there and, and yeah. enjoy, the average American tequila drinker also just wants a really fun experience. You know, tequila is a fun spirit. And I, I didn't want it to be too contemplative. And so hearing me and being such an artist, what he ultimately determined to do after a few years of trying this thing and that thing is 14 months now. And it's been this way for, for years, 14 months in French oak. And then he actually collects all that spirit back out of the French oak barrels and moves it into American oak, but uncharred, just toasted barrels for another 14 months. Yesterday I was doing a presentation in a store to a bunch of invited guests and, and consumers at the store. And I, I really always encouraged, I did yesterday, have people bring it, take take a sip of the Añigo, you know, acclimate your mouth to the alcohol and all of that. But really note on a second sip how much the entry is so, it's like a class in French oak. It's, it's nutty. It's tight. It's slightly astringent. It's linear. As you taste it, you get a lot of just darker stone fruit kind of flavors it's not very embellished you know it's 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 a little bit tight and rigid austere and then just mid palate you're like oh there's there's my it's like that delayed gratification is twice as sweet it's like there's those whiskey flavors there's the caramel vanilla butterscotch and and it's been that duality that he gave the product that's just it's 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 accountable it's the reason for its popularity as each of these is intended to be, right? Each of these is a distiller looking at the clouds and thinking, what would be fantastic? You know, Felipe Camarena takes his G4 Blanco and aerates it because we realized one drunken afternoon that running G4 through through an aerator <laughs> just does what it what a fine wine does at your table side when you yeah. decant it first. It it introduces more oxygen into it and it settles the product and it settles the flavor. So they all are just like do genius things. All of these guys, that's how they've managed to stay alive in the face of global liquor conglomerate <laughs> offenses every day. These guys are real stalwarts, all of them. And in, and Enrique there, I mean, if we were going to talk about 1146 today, it's those basic four things, <laughs> his roast, his extractions, his fermentation, Sorry, five. His distillation and then his barreling. Each one of those is just so different. This Artenom 1146, you know, you said earlier, this is 100% verified, confirmed, additive-free. There, there's nothing going on here. And the no color, coloring, nothing. The no. color that you get on this Añejo, and to your point, that taste, it is so complex. It is, you know, you, you drink it, and then at the back end it really opens up to these different flavors and it's something that you have to sit and spend time with. I, I used to think let's, let's try the tequila for the first time on the show. And I quickly learned, I have to sit with tequilas and really start to understand yeah. what they're doing. And Arte Nam 1146 is a great representation of it needs, you, you've got to understand it. It's like, it's very different. We're not dating. I want to get married. Like I want to really, yeah, it's I very want different. To understand this thing. It's here. very different. Yeah. Yeah. Very if you, complex. If, if anybody's interested in like trying something around that range and getting a sense of being a little more on the French side, 
Paradiso from El Tesoro is, is, is that. I was trying to do something a little more, for me, less austere. But there's great products that are out there. So much complex flavor there. It's it's a tequila and whiskey lover's dream. I mean, it, it really is. And then lastly, we have Fuente Seca. This is, uh, in my opinion, Enrique's like PhD in patience, like just to, just to be patient with this. I, I've heard Grover talk about how, you know, Enrique just takes his time with this entire process. I mean, you've been talking about it. Yeah. This is on full display here with Fuente Seca. It goes back a long time, and and we'll get to we'll get to the age stuff. But recently, in the past handful of years, there's been some blancos coming out of here. Talk to me a little bit about Cosecha 2013, as this is hailed as one of the top blancos. I mean, ever. I mean, this is this is one of the top blancos, as as people just you know are fully in love with this Cosecha 2013. How cool. And now we're, the 2018 Oslo has just been, I mean, we, we ran out of the 2013. These are single lot productions. So when it's out, it's out. And uh, we're on to the 2018 and that's doing incredibly well. And we've got the next one lined up. It, it will one day be Oh out. yeah, one day soon. One day soon. I don't know if you remember this. I always have people that, friends of mine that will FaceTime me or will text me when they're at a liquor store and they will say, hey, I'm, I'm at this liquor store. What should I get? And I had a buddy from Mississippi. He FaceTimed me. He's telling me, what, what should I get? And as I'm seeing the screen, I see Cosecha 2013. Fantastic. We have a great distributor in Mississippi. As I'm seeing it, I, I re- say to him, how many bottles are there? And he goes, there's five bottles. And I hung wow. up on him. I texted you and I said, I can get my hands on five bottles yeah. of Cosecha 2013. And your response was, I can't even get my hands on five bottles of Cosecha. No. Get them. That's right. So I told my buddy, hey, buy them all. Buy them all. And he, you know, one by oh. one, got them over to me. And, and he took one of them. I took Fantastic. four of them. I hung up the phone. My wife looked at me like, "What? what's wow. happening here? What, what are you doing here? That, you lucked out. This is such a phenomenal Blanco. There's yeah. a there's a beautiful story with these agaves. The way yeah. you describe these agaves for what's going on. So talk to us a little bit about how this came about, because this was really the introduction for Blanco with Fuente Seca. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, Fuente Seca is a brand we only did, created like 10 years, like 10 or 12 years ago. Not only, but, you know, it, it, that the brand doesn't go back. The barrels were just sitting there. And Enrique has sold off here and there. Añejo tequila, you know, to to other bottlers, yeah, that they that they sell as their own or they bottle or mix into their own spirits. Fuente Seca, the reservas, the the aged ones, were really the guiding light of this program. But that once we kind of had conceptualized of having that luxury niche, which before that was only in a single product, which was tequila three four five, which wasn't single lot. Tequila three four five is a blend. It's a cuvee of Enrique's. He's he's regulating it on his palate of three, four, and five year tequila extrañejos, yeah. all of them. So that, it, but it's always produced and it's always slightly changing. But he is a very good blender, and so he keeps that to be kind of the house cuvee or maritage or whatever you want to say. But we had created something that had the the lux of a Fuente Seca to do, to have a platform to do a true single field designate tequila. And so having agave under cultivation in six different regions of Jalisco, this is the really true story. In 2013, that harvest was so damn good. I mean, we're like talking about like an 82 Petrus or Petrus or something like that. Just highly coveted 
what I mean to say is there was enough rainfall the year before that the agave were very strong. Then there was low enough rainfall that they were dried and they really pushed their sugars because what the agave wants to do to reproduce is build up as much starch as it can that it can use as cheap energy to throw up that kyote stock so that it can reproduce before it dies. 2013 was just a really ideal harvest and it really pained Enrique to put this like extraordinarily high bricks. I mean, those agave were up at 29, 30, 31. They're just at the very top. Like your banana when you've left it too long in your fruit bowl and it's all brown. I mean, just exquisite. And so he he just put it in a in a tank, in a stainless steel tank. And kind of, we'll get back to this. What are we going to do with this? And there it sat oxygenating for three years. And we had already well-established Fuente Seca reservas at that point. And so decided, let's do just this magnanimous presentation of like some of the most exquisite agave he's ever harvested just extraordinarily high bricks and let's give it to them. Let's, let's give them the best that we possibly, possibly can in a Blanco expression. When you first tried it, what, I mean, what was, what was it like? I'll tell you the truth. When I first tried it, it reminded me of the first tequila I ever really, really fell in love with, which was Herman Gonzalez's Chinaco tequila in like 1997, 1996. It just, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it had everything. That we, I try to explain what overripe agave tastes like, you know, baked yam, tons like clove, naturally occurring cinnamon flavors. You just get so much baking spice. And then somehow you still have citrus. I mean, it's just so multi-layered. It's, I mean, just talking about it. God dang it, Doug. I'm going to have to go pop a bottle of cosecha later today. Yeah, <laughs> it's just one of the funnest. And I'm a salesman at heart. I've always been a salesman, a tequila salesman somehow my whole life or mezcal. It's the funnest product I've had in my bag in 20 years. It's very special. Yeah, just so special. And and there wasn't much of it. You know, we were only able to do, what was it, 2,500 four-packs. So we, we, you know, we only could do, yeah, 10,000 bottles. Yeah, yeah, 10,000 bottles. Because it was, we only had four digits, oddly, <laughs> in our in our number code. So we could only get to 9999 and then there was bottle zero. <laughs> so that's, that's how we... That's how we didn't have to write a five-digit. That's right. That's how we didn't have to write a five-digit number on it. That's been so fun, cosecha. And it's, it, it. I don't know. We say in Spanish, no hay panadero que habla mal de su pan. There's no baker that speaks ill of his bread, or I should say their bread. So meaning, of course, as a supplier, I'm going to say, it's the best tequila ever. Just truly, truly, really a unique expression. It's higher. I mean, at 45%, it's coming out around 45%, so 90 proof. I mean, there's... Yeah. You, you I mean, like all of our stuff, it. that's entirely at his discretion. Yeah. That's entirely at his discretion. I mean, he wherever the flavor pops. But the fun thing about Cosecha for us, and I hope for the consumer, is over time really being able to taste really radically different cultivation climates. This 2018 comes from very chalky soil, like white soil. It comes from the, actually, it's the, the town is Michoacan. It's in Michoacan. It's, it's just above La Barca. It's a little... It's a little hamlet on the east side of Lake Chapala, but up in, up into the mountain, Vista Hermosa. And its terroir is totally different than 2013. So we had a, a challenge to make sure consumers, distributors, everyone knew. This is it's not, not the same thing. your, it's not the same thing. And the next one's going to be very different too. But what you're guaranteed in all of them is 
absolutely over the top bricks levels really really over right plank it's just a lot of fun so you're you're saying that there is a another round of the cosecha that yeah. will yeah. be out at some point i mean we say primero dios with the favor of god <laughs> this one also sat was it two years in stainless in the stainless steel this one's two sat. yeah this one was just yeah. two this was just two there's not really a lot that goes on from year to year in stainless steel in my mezcal projects we do when Mexico started discontinuing the use of those 20 liter, five gallon, whatever, uh, Alhambra water jugs, you know, water cooler water jugs. They used to all be glass in Mexico, but just like the United States, they've moved to plastic. So we went through the water vendors and bought as many of the old glass 20 liter, we call them Spanish garrafones, you know, water jugs as we could. And we age our mezcals, our single varietals. I mean, we don't age them, we rest them in glass for a year, year and a half to to achieve the same kind of settling of the flavors. Kind of the, a well, real- Stabilization um, after melding all of the Yeah, stabilization. And really isotopes are, are, are melding. You're really getting chemically a smoother, calmer, product. It was a little hard for me to to embrace <laughs> after Enrique exhaustively explained and showed me and in reality and point of fact, there's no difference to aging or resting in glass or stainless steel. Glass looks sexier, it's you know, a little more boutique-ish. Yeah. But we are about, you know, truth and spirits and what we're doing. And the Fuente Seca cosechas are in stainless steel for that time but they might as well be in glass. Those are just totally inert materials that don't affect the product at all. Yeah. Literally at all. I've tried them side by side. And so that's what we're, this, this chalkier soil, much more minerally 2018 cosecha was just rested or yeah, rested is the word or conditioned or whatever you want to say, oxygenated. We, we want to be careful not to say aged because aged means a process. And Correct. That, that connotes barrel. It wasn't imparting flavors from the glass or anything with it. it. It's just hanging out there. Just hanging out. Both of these are are amazing. And and there are still some out in the wild. I mean, even the 2013s, I think from time to time. You, wow. It was probably six to eight months ago when I got mine, but there are still some out there. So if, if you can find yeah. them, grab them because they will never be oh, yeah. replicated again because of the That's fields right. that they came from and the bricks level and all that stuff. And I mean, really, really delicious. And, and Fuente Seca yeah. the Reserve, it really did start as this aging process. We've, we've talked about it. I, I've got in front of me, I've got a seven year, I've got an eight year, I've got an 11 year, a 15 year, an 18 Fantastic. year. And then you Fantastic. think like, okay, he's going to stop at 18, a 21 year extra in Yeho. I mean, this is, this is like, we get into absurdity. The oldest tequilas in the world. By far, the oldest yes. tequilas in the world. And not only that, Enrique had to seriously petition the Tequila Regulatory Council for a long time to be the only distillery that's awarded the right to put both a vintage date and a barrel age statement on the same label. Okay. So when you buy Fuente Seca, you mentioned the seven year. You know, at one point we sold out of the first seven year that we did which was a 2005, 2005. And then we had to bottle because we ran out of that inventory, 2010. And so you'll see two seven years there that don't taste exactly the same. And so the difference is luckily, there's a vintage statement, a, a harvest date of when it was distilled on the label prominently featured. And so the tasting notes you know, are abound because all of those different expressions and different lots of vintages 
So it's a product that's just got a lot of transparency, total transparency. The still type specifications that we've got online, either at Enrique and Mice Company or Haas Brothers, it's the same. They're, they're pretty much mirrored websites. Really breaks down each expression, each, as we call them, vendemia, which is vintage, down to, you know, it was this percentage column still, this percentage pot still, this percentage copper, this percentage stainless steel, where the barrel sat. He will keep them up at around 5,600 feet, 5,500 feet where there's more atmospheric pressure that pushes the the spirit well into the staves. And then usually a couple months before bottling, if not half a year or more, he'll bring them down to tequila, which is at like 3,400 feet, just so that the staves, the, the pressure is reduced and the product changes a little bit. It settles also. He, everything is very intentional. And the other thing that he does, it's so fascinating to me, which was you know, I've, you can tell I've learned so much from Enrique. It's really important how one blends. Blending is a whole art. You know, the French understand it so, so well. Cognac is effectively all about the blend. And because they use a single grape varietal and a very compact region. So it's all in the blender. The way Enrique masterfully puts together to, to create these different barrels throw different characteristics. Well, he just layers them. I mean, he just layers oh. them to to create this outcome it's just extraordinary yeah i yeah, mean this so seven fun. year i've got the 2010 seven year and the information you guys give on you know you remove some of those plates to achieve that lower distillation proof you know you the the way that how much percentage of this here going into cool climate subterranean barrel room i mean all of that is experimenting but there's a creator he's That's the it. master here going hey let's try this let's do this and it really is art. I mean, this is Arte Nama's art, but these are yep. the second reserves. Like, yeah, let's drink no, them, yeah. enjoy them. But but let's understand that there's artwork that's happening here on full display with Absolutely. Enrique Fonseca. Oh, that's his that's his brilliance. That is Enrique's brilliance. He's he, it, it is. You said it just so well. I mean, I, we don't want to get you know too lost in hyperbole and self you know congratulation. But Arte Nama is an art in that I'm just trying to let each of these distillers. Right. Do something great and artistic. They are all artists. I mean, they all are doing incredibly amazing things, really. I mean, all of the producers that we work with yep. aren't just showing up to work and distilling. They're, no, this they're is their all, life. They're all, this is their life. This is their heritage, their history. They can, they smell <laughs> brick sugar. You know, they smell fermentation and alcohol to sugars left and all of that. Enrique's one of the best of them. He's just what you said. He's got a huge palette of different barrels, different stills, different agave cultivation regions. And everything I can say, whether people like it or not, that he puts out is intentional. Yeah. Everything is very intentional. Nothing just is kind of what it was that year. And unfortunately, with the the same kind of industry consolidation that's happened in telecom and airlines and <laughs> restaurant groups and you know it's pervasive in, in technology and everywhere that we look the consolidation in the world of spirits has been brutal you've had now six you have six now it was always five but now it's six i've included campari now as, as kind of the sixth global conglomerate that feels it's necessary to own all of their vertically integrate all of their production of all of their different brands across all of the different categories it was always fantastic luck for me to have gotten started in this industry when companies like seagram still existed because you know seagram's would be the importer of brands but not the owner of the distillery 
and in charge of cultivating the raw materials. You know? Yeah, now these groups want to own, they want to own it all. They want to own everything. They want to own everything. And in a principally agricultural product like tequila or mezcal, it just goes without saying, what they start playing to is the lowest common denominator. And yeah. that's what it's about. It's, yeah, it's, it's a race about to the people bottom. hitting, it frankly is a race to the bottom. Or I should just say, maybe not the bottom, but we can at least say standardization. You know, the, the idea that quality is the reproducibility of results. So in that way that, you know, McDonald's has world-renowned quality and that a Big Mac in the United States tastes like a Big Mac in Argentina, like a Big right. Mac in Japan, how to reproduce consistent results. And of course, that goes in the face of quintessentially agricultural products nature. that are at the whim of It goes nature. against nature. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This seven year, it's very light. It's not overly oaked. I mean, we'll get through. I mean, the color right. on Can you those, imagine that at seven years not being overly oaked? It's not. There's agave there. It's light in yeah. flavor. I mean, just the fact that he yeah. bought this distillery, not fully knowing how he was going to use every <laughs> area of that distillery. That's another beautiful part of the story. That's yeah, right. there's a little bit of luck in here. I mean, there's so much talent, but there's also luck. And those things can run at the same level of him seeing it and saying, okay, let me use what I have and not just use it, yeah. but maximize it. And we're seeing it with, with this entire lineup. Yeah. Yeah. Give Michelangelo a paintbrush. Yeah. The seven years. Great. And and then we, we move up just one year to an eight year. This was 2008. And as you said, you know, the, the brand started. 10 plus years ago, but he had all of this juice in barrels because he had so much right. tequila and he had so many barrels right. that he had all of this juice. A lot of times people may listen and go, well, how's he have a 21 year if it's only 10 years old? He still had all of that. He just didn't know right, what he was exactly. going to do with it until right. 10 plus years ago. So, And there's a good story there quickly just to explain to you or explain to the audience here that the, the we, he has, I mean, by now, the stocks that he's got left of from that 1993 harvest are, you know, 26 years old, right? Or 20, whatever. God, I'm bad at math. Yeah, that's 93. The, yeah, that 21 is, nine, is yeah. 93. Yeah, so we, we can re-release it when we were pretty much out of that 21 release. And so we'll redo it. But so it will have a newer, I mean, it will have a updated age statement, but it will still be the 93 juice okay but the only reason he goes back to 93 is that's when the crt the tequila regulatory council began on a daily basis visiting the distillery and recording and sealing barrels so that the crt's own data shows these barrels were barreled in 1993 from agave, if you can imagine this, that was planted in 1985. So that's crazy. He's to your point. He's had these stocks, and Fuente Seca was a way to to reduce them. <laughs> and same thing with this eight year. I mean, he's changing up the percentages here, talking about damp climate, cellar use in the 1900s as a as a water cistern. I mean, I mean, he's yeah, he's really in tune with his environment, and he understands that the environment. Very. You understand that the environment plays a big part as to the outcome of this juice. So, I mean, this eight Huge. year, I mean, it, it steps up. There's, there's a lot of character here. Then we get to an 11 year and I mean, it's just, it just is crazy to think, let's put this in a barrel and let's just walk away and forget about it yeah. and know at the end, it's going to be um, amazing. I do want to also mention that, that people will think, I'm sure this will occur to your listeners. What about the angel share? Because in whiskey, yep. they talk so much about the, the loss of evaporation from yeah, how much gets lost. And it's important to make this point just for the knowledge and transparency of the brand. Once, once a, a tequila regulatory council 
verifier comes to the barrel house, the Rick house that's up in Atotonilco. And uh, actually in this, the little hamlet, five minutes from Atotonilco, which is called Chapingo. When, I, when the verifier goes to Chapingo, Enrique's guys can say, hey, look, our plan in this next month is we're going to collapse these 10 barrels right here that you, the CRT, sealed. And we're going to collapse them into five barrels. Okay. You can, from the same lot and the same series and number series and, and production, you can put those together without any problem from the CRT. So I don't want the viewer, the listener to think barrels from 1993, that sounds preposterous. You know, you'd only have a couple of inches at the bottom of the barrel. It started out as more barrels and then you blend exactly. and those barrels get reduced. Exactly. And by the end of it, right. you have what you have for the lot and that's what's produced. And when it's gone, it's gone. That's it. That also really helps the product. You want, you really want to age in full barrels. You, Correct. you don't, it, it just, the product does a lot better that way. So I just want to make sure that Whoever's paying attention to this conversation doesn't <laughs> think on sitting in traffic on the way to work one morning, you know, how the hell could that be possible? Yeah. And I do get the question about angel share. You lose the most the first year. You you can lose, you know, 4%, 3.5%, 4%. 2nd year, 3rd year, 4th year, you're losing 3%. But then it goes down to 2 to. Two and a half percent. Yeah, that barrel's already taken as much as it can really yeah. take, and it's just minimal what it's taking year after year. And interestingly, what you're really losing is water because as the spirit gets absorbed into staves, even though we know that alcohol has a lighter specific gravity than water and evaporates quicker if you spill some alcohol on the liquor on the floor versus yep. water, but the staves are of course cut vertically from boards from the from the tree, and the xylem of the the cellulose of the tree knows how to pull through capillary action water through through wood right to get from your roots up to your leaves yeah so that capillary action doesn't stop when you make a a barrel out of vertical staves vertical wood staves okay so as your as your alcohol soaks you know two three millimeters into the wood the water starts passing up through the xylem up through the capillary action and evaporating out of the end of the staves while your alcohol doesn't move because the silent has no idea how to transport alcohol. So slowly, your alcohol concentration is, your proof, your alcohol by volume is increasing in a barrel. I was going to say, and that's why, because some, the proof goes up as it's as it's aging. Inherently, because we don't want to, we don't want to temper it too much with water to, we don't want to temper it hardly at all. Yeah. If any. So much that the proof goes up is that the water goes down, creating Correct. the proof to go Bingo. up. Okay. Right on. Interesting. Yeah, you totally capture that yeah exactly so that was the eight year and then there's an 11 year and then we go to a 15 year and again from color to color i mean there's they're, they're not over oaking here i mean this is still very right. very minimal i mean there's agave here to think that you can put something in a barrel for 15 years and not have it be whiskey what was his thought process as he's combining you know these percentages and figuring out you know how much of this and how much of that and the type of still because there's even some columns still being utilized in in these oh, yeah. aged the thought process for as he's doing this without getting too far lost in the weeds as i have a tendency to do essentially when you're as we talked about earlier when you're distilling in a column still you're distilling a product with fewer agave fats and vegetable fats than in a pot still in an okay. alambic still and so why you see column still being used at all in Fuente Seca is it's necessary to 
kind of leave the product out, kind of yeah. stretch it. You, you, you want fewer agave fats, ironically, okay. vegetable fats, if you're going to age for a very long time. Because it's going to... Over time, those will break down. Yeah. I mean, you get a very thick, viscous, you know, heavy, whiskey-esque product there. Okay. And so if the listener viewer was to imagine, God forbid, you know, aging vodka, then then we know the apocalypse is truly... Nobody bad. wants to imagine that. No, nobody wants to imagine that. But you would imagine you will, you will not pick up a whole lot of wood characteristics. You... The grapes, on the other hand, like brandy, which are very heavy, lots of congeners, lots of flavor molecules, get very affected by barreling. So the, the the nature of the spirit that you're putting in the barrel really dictates to a large degree. And it also is worth saying that a lot of those harvests were slightly underwhelming harvests because you don't also want bodaciously high brick sugars because you're going to pick up so, so many of those vanilloids compounds from the wood, okay. vanillins. So... It's a, like I said earlier, it's a very intentional aging that Tequilania 1140. It's the most intentional aging program I've ever seen. Absolutely. So when we talk about the differences, which again, I really hope that people will go to the website and just download the, what we call, I think the cell sheet or the product sheet. Yeah. And, like and I'll that. have all it's, that stuff listed. I'll, I'll have it's links got to these all of paragraphs that. of every single expression. Like you can know everything about the product for the, for the poker game. You're going to take the bottle to what you are going to infrequent frequently find as a confluence of lower brick sugars in those years. For example, we're not going to put Fuente Seca Cosecha in 2013 in a barrel for seven years. It was just too fat. It was it just had too much going on. And what we want to really do is use slightly lower, lower bricks where the agave just didn't store as much. And agave bricks levels also fluctuate. In the rainy season, if you've got just a ton of rain that year, they will absorb a lot. They'll take up a lot of that water and their sugar, they'll become waterlogged and their sugars proportionately diminish slightly. So when you ask me about the 11 or the 15 or the 18 or the 21, as much as I've sold those products, they've gone from lot to lot and I don't remember. I don't yeah, have the, the mental lot of, capacity. Lot of, a lot of variations <laughs> I there. Think we, I think we do like 58 different skews, different expressions uh, over our different product groups and all of that at this point it's just gotten totally to be a circus but thank god those are eight different distillers making all of these things so it's yeah. not like anyone's bogged down but the information is is complete on that on that product sheet that's available at our website and the thing that i can tell you is standard through them is there's going to be usually more column distillate the older they are because he's also, nothing goes in like chronological order. So by the time he's deciding, I'm going to pull this and we're going to do this um, vintage date, this Vendemia versus another, it's because that's, the product is ready. It's it's to it's the caliber that he's wanting. There's no like predetermined plan. So the, coming here in 2022, what Enrique Fonseca does with Fuente Seca will be really referenced by the conditions of yeah. that spirit in those barrels. What you'll see is he wants to scoot through products that are fatter, that are richer, and let products that are leaner and lower lower sugars, lower brick sugars inherently at their time of harvest. Yeah, let them shine. Let them shine a little longer. Yeah. And that's why ironically you can look at you know that like the twenty one year, I remember somebody contacted me and said, Your your marketing department which <laughs> my marketing department is non-existent, but they screwed up on this because 
I think they did the labeling wrong because this 21 and this 18 are actually a lighter color than, you know, to your point, the 7 or the, the 8 or the 11. And that's for the aforementioned reasons. They're they're leaner. They're not as fat. They're not going to take up color as fast. So, I mean, two things I'm taking away here. I mean, there's a lot we're taking away, but two things is intentionality. Everything is just intentionality. So and then nature. I mean, this is Boom. what it is, is intentionality in nature. This 18 year, the taste on this, there's a little bit of sweetness here. It you know has a little heat on the back end. These are different proofs and they're not, they're not all 40. A lot of them are going to be in that kind of 42, 43 range because that is what it is as we lose that water there, as you said. But this 18 is incredibly delicious. I mean, a real treat to sip on. And then, you know, we don't stop there. We get to a 21 year Extra in Yeho. Uh, real, real quick story. I was in I was in Epcot at Cava del Tequila. They've got a great Mexican bar there at Epcot. I was with a buddy of mine, Michael Anthony, and it was be, it was right before he came into town. I had a tasting event that weekend. He came into town, and we're sitting there, and they told us, "Hey, we just got in Fuente Seca." 21 year extra in Yeho. You know, it's it's not cheap, especially at a retail, especially no. at a restaurant for a two ounce pour. Uh, it's it's not cheap. And my buddy- I don't we even were, want to ask. It's horrifying. We're talking about like, should should we get this? to? I mean, they hadn't even opened the bottle yeah. yet. They just got it. And my I'm pretty frugal. So I was like, um, I think yeah. we could. there's some other things to, to try. Yeah. And my buddy just yeah. said, but how many times am I going to get to sit here with you in in this great Mexican bar yeah. here at Epcot and experience yeah. a 21 year extra añejo. So we did it. Yeah. And and they yeah. split up, you know, we got a two ounce pour, they split up one ounce each. They Fantastic. brought it out in the Rydells. You know, everyone around us was asking what Fantastic. it was. And and that's a memory. I mean, that's a life Fantastic. moment to just have Let me experience. tell you, man, that's such well, off the top of my head, I really wanted to say your comment about intentionality and nature, it gives me like a a little like one of those positive chills up my spine. Uh, we can all think, I mean, I think, I hope we can all think of, think of who we know in our friendship groups, each and every one of us. I bet we've got like maybe one or two friends that understand in life the confluence of intentionality yeah. and nature. It's very Zen in a way. It's very, I've got to have intention and purpose. And I do have an effect over my environment and what I'm doing. Yeah. But I have to do that totally fluid with nature. And if I try to be too stubborn, things aren't going to work out right. And yeah. I just think you hit the nail on the head with that. I, that's just fantastic. Well, thank you. It's, to the it's point true. that you just said about the cost. I mean, it's really, I think that's just genius comment. In terms of the pricing, it takes a little bit of this thing away. <laughs> when you look at how Tequilenia prices their Fuente Secas, they have, of course, documented what was the, the value of the agave. In yeah. 1993 or 1994, you know, every year. So what was the cost of that, putting it into barrel? And then he does a very humble 3% a year ROI, which is just, you know, a, a mathematical calculation. Yeah. Return on investment. I want to make 3% on this money because this is a business. So he's got yeah. to make, you know. Yeah. And then the third factor is just inflation. And he looks at what was annual inflation. And it, yeah. it's literally like a spreadsheet dictates what the Fuente Seca's cost. And I think it's a really important point to make, maybe obscure, <laughs> but so much of what happens in our business is the wrong kind of intentionality. It's about plugging gaps on the shelf in price points. Yeah. I want I want something to cost this. I want something to cost that. I think it, it can be a little bit of a consolation to somebody enjoying Fuente Seca to know 
what you're paying there. Is the price of agave 3% per year of ROI, of return on his on the investment there and inflation, and that's it. Nothing else. The product stands on its own. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we can we yeah. can talk about costs and try to try to justify, but yeah. the reality but is, but we this have is like large. super. We're surrounded by super luxury tequilas, quote unquote, by huge brands yeah. that have five years or three years, and they are one hundred forty nine ninety nine. Why? Because they could. Because that's the profitability, or it satisfies some gap on the shelf, and. Fuente Seca is definitively not that. Yeah, this is this is something to bring together and to enjoy, but this is also something that I would love to have in my collection to just put on display because of the stories you've told and understanding what Enrique Fonseca is is doing with it, how he's coming to this, you know, at the end point of this. I mean, this is art. This is something to display and to tell a story about. I mean, Jake, I I, I love your passion. I'm thankful for Thank what you, you're doing in the industry. I love yours. Very harmonious. Thank you for what you're doing in the industry because, you know, you may wake up every day going, does it matter? And I'm here to tell you, it does matter. And guys like wow. you, and there's Thank so you. many others that are, are alongside of you that are moving the needle and to educate the consumer for mature quality made amazing tequila not to just sip on but to tell a story and to experience the producer and and this is their life so i, I just want to say thank you for coming on the show again and oh, this Doug, you know you're you, always man. welcome here this hopefully will not be the last time thank we, you, brother. i think we've got a mezcal episode you. somewhere in there fantastic just thank cool. you for for sharing all these brands i will have links to thank everything you, and i'm looking at your back shelf those are all friends every one of those people are friends back there i, I mean it's great it's a community it's an amazing That's community. What we've got. Yeah, it's an amazing community. So and we're grateful for it. So I want to say thank you. Uh, like I said, we'll we'll have information about all of this. But you're you're always welcome on the show, my friend. And uh, you, cheers man. to to all these amazing brands and all the work that you I and your team you. have done. You're doing it. You're the you're the communicator to the public out there. We're really grateful to you. It's my honor, buddy. Salute. Thanks, Doug. That was Jake Lustig from Haas Brothers and Terra Nova Spirits. To learn more about the tequilas that Jake is involved with, you can go to haas-brothers.com or deltequila.com. Both will be linked in the episode notes. A big thanks to siptequila.com for supporting the show. Be sure to check out their brand new website as they carry Artenam and Fuente Seca. I'm Doug Price, and thanks for listening. <laughs>